And let us, let us pray. Father, may it be that you would write this scripture upon our hearts for the satisfying of our souls in a world that is always craving and longing for more. Help us to find our everything in you, O Lord. Amen. Amen. Someone has said that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. The measuring of what I have compared to what you have is the thief of all joy. The writer of this psalm, Asaph, would agree. This is a psalm written by a man we know very little about. Asaph, the author, was a songwriting, worship, and choir director in ancient Israel. But beyond that, we don't know very much. Once you've read this psalm, you realize it doesn't much matter who wrote it or when, because it could have been written by any sincere believer anywhere on earth, any time in history. For it, it describes an experience that every single one of us has had, no matter who we are and no matter where we are in life. This psalm describes every one of us who's gotten ensnared in the comparison trap. It is a psalm for those who feel like they always get the short end of the happiness stick. Uh, it is written for those who always feel like they've been dealt a bad hand. And then in addition to that, those who find it especially galling, like salt in the wound, when they see others who have been dealt a better hand, and when those others are particularly wicked and sinful. It may be house-related, or car-related, or job-related, or class-related, or race-related, or family-related, or health-related, but we feel like there's always somebody who is less godly and less worthy than we are, who has more health and more wealth and more happiness than we do. And we don't like it. We, we all know really sinful people. At least as defined by us. Really sinful people, at least people who don't give God the time of day, who are a lot better off than us. If your marriage is hard, your world probably seems full of people who don't have a whiff of faith in their heart, but they're happily married and in love. If you are among the believing poor, you've seen unbelieving, godless, rich people who seem to get everything they want. If, if you think yourself less than attractive, then your world probably feels like it's filled with, with knockouts. If, if you are powerless, you've seen godless politicians and power brokers who do what they do with no thought to others and seem to get away with it. If, if you are a minority, you have felt disadvantage and bigotry and injustice and inequity, and those who are guilty of it don't ever seem to get what's coming to them. If you love Jesus, but 
have children who don't and who are in fact making a sad mess of their lives. You've probably looked at other families whose children seem perfectly happy and content. If you're chronically ill or infirmed or in pain, fighting for faith, fighting to be faithful to God in the midst of it all, I'm sure, like me, you've seen neighbors and co-workers who don't want anything to do with faith, but they're ever so healthy and ever so wealthy. We all know what it feels like to see others prosper. And we know what it feels like to see those who do not know God or love God or want anything to do with God prosper, it seems, even more. That's what this psalm is about. It's about the cancer and the cure of envy. And what I'd suggest to you this afternoon is that this psalm teaches us this simple truth. We, we cure our envy of the world when we realize two things. We cure our envy of the world when we realize that we have both a better end and the ultimate friend. We cure our envy of the world when we realize that we have both a better end and the ultimate friend. If, 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 you, if you're battling envy, if it's working on your soul in a negative way, you can cure that envy by being reminded of these two things. We have, as believers, a better end, and we have the ultimate friend. Let's, let's look at the, the psalm in front of us. First of all, just noticing this cancer that envy is. In verses 1 through 16, uh, most of which has been read, or all of which has been read already, we see the envy crisis that is going on in the author's heart. There's a, there's a cancer that's afflicting him. In verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You start, the, you start the psalm and it looks pretty good. In verse 1, he starts out by saying, hey, God is good to Israel. It sounds like he's in a good place, but you need to understand that he's actually starting at the end. In other words, he's giving us his conclusion in verse 1, but before he got to that conclusion, he went through verses 2 through 16 where we read that he was a spiritual mess. I mean, the description of his condition is, is, is vivid. In, in verses 9 through 13, he, he goes on talking about how the wicked, those who are proud and defiant toward God, uh, they, they even say things like, you know, they set their mouths against the heavens, their tongue struts through the earth, therefore his people turn back to them, find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And then down down in verse 
21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph is in a bad place here. This, this is a man who is in a serious, coveting mood. He is violating the Tenth Commandment all over the place here. He is coveting everything that others have, and it's so gotten hold of his heart that in verses 21 and 22, we read about this state, the condition of his heart. He says, I, am, I was embittered. My heart grew sour. I was sour toward others. I was sour toward life. I was sour toward God. Then he goes on to say, his heart was brutish. It was, it was almost animal-like. He had stopped thinking rationally. You, you ever get this way when it comes to envy? You just, it just so consumes you that you lose your bearings. You lose your sanity. You're just consumed by what others have that you don't have. And he's reduced almost to animal-like passions and, and cravings here. He says he's, he was ignorant. He was forgetting and ignoring or living in denial of the truth. He's, he's reacting to God plans for his life as if he's this dumb animal who's been cornered and he's lashing out at God. When we envy others and when we allow that to take root in our hearts, one of the end results is we lose our sanity. We lose our rationality. We become controlled by our wantings and our cravings and our longings rather than controlled by God. Which is why Paul the Apostle in Colossians calls covetousness idolatry. It's because those things that we want and crave are ruling us. They are dominating us in a way that God and God alone is to dominate and to rule us and to govern our lives. So as you look at this psalm, we see that this is an envy-infected man. He has slipped into doubt and disbelief, not convinced that God is good. He has slipped into bitterness and angry and irrationality. And he's even slipped into a state where he really doesn't even care about being good anymore. Did you notice that in verses 12 and 13? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He says, what's the point? If they're going to get all of that and they don't love God, and I'm going to love God and I don't have nearly that amount, what is the point of loving God? What is the point of living good? What is the point of doing right? Note to self, if, if I live a life of faith thinking that the result of it will be a life of prosperity, I am going to be bitterly disappointed. If I try to do the right thing so that God will do nice things to me in this life, I am in for a crash. There are, there are many, I'll just say it as a side note, there are many, and there are many in churches today, who are trying to use God as, as a kind of, of fortune 
fetish, as a, as a kind of way to, to get good, nice things, prosperity, health, and wealth in this life. Folks, it doesn't work. Faithfulness to God does not mean necessarily blessing and prosperity in this life, and very often it means the opposite. But that isn't the end of the story, as we're going to see, but it is an important note to self. If, if your faith is rooted in a desire for God to give you the things you want, then I think you need to recheck your faith. I think you need to start over again and have a faith that is rooted, as we're going to see, in a desire for God and God alone. And then you'll be satisfied no matter what comes your way. Now, this is the cancer that's in Asaph's heart. He, he's in a bad place here. He is bitter. He is brutish. He is ignorant. He says, I was acting like a beast toward you, O God. So what do we do with this? How, how does he get cured of this cancer? Well, we cure our envy of the world when we realize that we have two things, a better end and the ultimate friend. A better end and the ultimate friend. First, we have a better end. Look at verse 16. And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you, Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Verse 24, but you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Verse, verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all your works. Asaph was reminded of the end of the wicked and how we have a better end. He's in this bad place. And in verse 16, it says he went to the sanctuary and then I discerned their end. I discerned. The end of the wicked. I caught a glimpse as to their destiny. I caught a glimpse as to the outcome of their life. I caught a glimpse of their final state. And then everything changed. I realized in that moment that those who are not pure in heart, to use the phrase of verse 1. Those who are unfaithful to God, to use the phrase of verse 27. Those who reject the true God, preferring false gods and idols. Those who are proud and arrogant. Those who are the wicked. They are headed to a sudden, a terrible, a complete, and a forgotten end. They are headed to a sudden end. Verses 18 and 19. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Their end will be sudden. Those who refuse to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Those who refuse to declare that He is Lord. Those who refuse to trust in Christ. Those who refuse to bow their heads to Him who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Sovereign of the universe. Those who defy Him. Those who say God doesn't know. God isn't seeing. I'm not afraid of Him. Their end will be sudden. In a moment, as suddenly and unexpectedly, Asaph says, as slipping on the ice or being swept away by a flash flood, their end will come. Their end will come. And their end will be terrible. It will be terrifying. Verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Oh, my friends, this is the Word of God. This is the truth of God. This is declared by He who is the living and the true God that in a moment, in place of the pleasure and the prosperity and the wealth and the health and the affluence that the proud and arrogant wicked enjoy now, in a moment it will be gone. It will be overwhelmed by terror. Either happening in the moment of their death when one split second after they depart this world, they suddenly find themselves in the presence of a holy God. Or it will happen when Jesus comes back and He rends the heavens and splits the skies, shows Himself in His glory, and in the words of Revelation 6, the wicked will cry to the mountains, fall on us. And hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Either way, there is a terrible, terrifying end coming to those who refuse to bend their knee to God. The psalmist goes on to say that their end will not only be sudden, not only terrible and terrifying, but it will be complete. Verse 19, they will be swept away utterly by terrors. The word speaks of completeness and finality. They will be swept away utterly. They will be swept away completely. This is an end with no end. This is an end that's final for those that refuse to bend their knees. Regardless of how wealthy they are, regardless of how prosperous they are, all of that will do them no good on that day. And then finally, their end will be a forgotten end. Verses 19 and 20, this is what I think is being said here. It's a little tough to figure out what the author means, but he says in verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I, I think what Asaph is getting at here is that the wicked, those who refuse to bend their knee to God, 
In that moment of judgment, they will be swept away into oblivion. They will be forgotten like a dream is forgotten. They will be forgotten like a phantom. Their realness, their substantialness will will just fade. They will be forgotten. The ultimate futility. The ultimate horror to be remembered no more. sat in my office this week thinking on these things and realizing that if ever there is a truth in the Christian faith that is offensive to the point of almost intolerable in our generation, this is the truth. That there will be a sudden, terrible, complete end to those who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't get the wrong impression. Um, don't, don't think of God in His judgment or in His wrath as, as if He is impulsive and, and excessive and random in His wrath. God, God isn't like us, and I'm glad for that. I'm rather impulsive in my anger. You know, I'm sure this never happens to any of you, but I... I actually get mad at other drivers on the road. Especially when they, they have the nerve to cut in front of me and then go below the speed limit. It's like, can, you know, it's like, what happens on the inside of us? What, why is this? There is an instant, emotional, angry reaction. And we... We, we act as if they were, they were parked and sitting on that side road there waiting for us to come along and watching and watching and watching and thinking, no, they're not close enough yet. They're, no, let me wait. I really want to make this miserable for this guy. You know, and then pull out. You know, just, you know, just. We, we act as if it's intentional, deliberate, offensive behavior And then we go and do it to somebody just 10 minutes later. And then we get mad at the people who get mad at us for doing the same thing. You see, we humans, our our wrath is impulsive. Our anger is irrational. Our anger is selfish. Our our anger is unjust. Our our anger is, is really ultimately, most of the time, all about me. But God's wrath is different. God's wrath is a just wrath. God's anger is is purely His justice in action. It It is God rendering to everyone exactly what is His or her do. It is, it is not God flying off the handle. It's not God flying into a tirade. It's not as if God is just fed up. No, when judgment comes and wrath comes, it will be measured, it will be proportionate, it will be fair, it will be delivered out according to what each one has done. But it's wrath. And it's terrible. And it will be sudden. And it will be final. 
It's real because God is holy. You see, what we try to do, we're, we're like the people here in uh, Psalm 73, the wicked in verse 11. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You know, people have always been, this was written, what, 3,000 years ago. We think, you know, people's unbelief is new today. Wow, modern unbelief. No, way back 3,000 years ago, people were saying, oh, where is God, what is, what, you know, God doesn't see it. Don't worry about it. God's going to be, don't even worry about God. Just live your life, do your thing, defy heaven. People have always been living in denial of the reality of God. We, we tend too often to underestimate our guilt. We're not that bad. We tend to exaggerate our holiness. We're really, really good. We tend to domesticate God's holiness. And we tend to emasculate God's justice. And so at the end of the day, we live in this denial that somehow or other we're better than we really are. God is nicer and gentler than He really is. And we deny justice in the reality, but the re, or in the in the process. But the reality is that on that day, the real enormity of human sin will be revealed, and the real wrath of God against that sin will be revealed. But here's the deal. Here's the reality. You're saying, you know, this is just that old fire and brimstone stuff. Understand this: the warnings of the Bible are the mercies of God. The warnings of the Bible are God's mercies. Look, if it was just pure wrath with no hope, it would have already fallen on you and me. But He's still waiting. God is kind and gracious. He wants sinners to come to faith in Him. He wants men and women and children to trust in Jesus. He wants us to repent of our arrogance. He wants us to realize that there is one who died for arrogant sinners. There is one who died for you and for me. And if we repent of our sins, trust in Him, realize that apart from Jesus, we're doomed, but in Jesus, we're saved. If we realize that and believe that, then the mercy of God just flows into our lives. But it's when we're in denial that we, in fact, seal our own doom. Don't, don't take these warnings, these serious words, as somehow or other these primitive illustrations of a wrathful God in the past. No, take them as a clear and present offering of mercy. That God right now could justly condemn us, but He hasn't. Because His heart is full of mercy. In wrath, the Scriptures say, He has remembered mercy. And He extends it to you and to me here today. So if you are numbered among those who to this point would say, no, I'm not a believer. I haven't trusted in Christ. I haven't bowed my knee to God. Then do it right now. Do it right where you are. Right now. Right where you are. Say, Lord, I surrender. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I, I want to be delivered from the wrath to come. I want my end to be a better end. And so, Asaph, he considers the end of the wicked 
And then he considers his own end and how wonderful it gets. Notice verses 24 through 27. He's described this terrible end for the wicked, but then he says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Notice the word, forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. In verse 26, he speaks of a forever that awaits those who trust in God's mercy and salvation. In verse 27 and 28, he tells us that those who live far from God will perish, but God will be a refuge and a safety for all who trust in Him, and He will see us through whatever happens in life so that we will live to tell about it. Verse 20, 28, that I may tell of all your works. Hey, brother, sister, friend, believer here this afternoon, However hard it is, however difficult it is, however much less than others you have, He is going to see you through. And you're going to tell of His works. And you're going to tell of those works forever. And you're going to tell of those works forever in glory. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and after, afterward you will receive me to glory. The end of the wicked is sudden, complete, terrifying, never to be remembered, ruin. The end of the faithful is safety, salvation, and glory forever. It is as we realize that we have a better end, that the poison of envy gets bled out of our system. Yes, Many in this world have more. They are healthier. They are wealthier. But when we remember their end and then consider ours, what is there to envy? What is there to envy? The wicked ought not to be envied. They ought to be pitied. They ought to be wept over. Not because they have more than us, because, but because they have infinitely less than us. We have a better end, and we have the ultimate friend. The ultimate friend. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
Verse 28, for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. The cure for Asaph's envy was being reminded that he had a better end and he had the ultimate friend. This text teaches us at least five things about God. Number one, God is good. God is good. The psalmist begins there and he ends there with the goodness of God. It's why should we, or why can we be cured of our envy? We can be because we know that we have a good and a generous God. A God who will provide all of our need. A God who will give us just enough in this life that we might delight in Him. I've been reminded of His goodness today. How about you? I had a slice of Galen's quiche sausage pie. Heaven on earth. God is good to give us taste buds. I felt a little whisper of a breeze. I'm thankful for whispers of breeze. Whispers of breeze, I guess, uh, on a hot day like this. A glass of cold water. A good laugh, a playful pet, a giggling child, a stirring song, a rack of ribs, the cross of Christ. God is good to us. God is good. The psalmist tells us God sees the heart. Verse 1, He is good to those who are pure in heart. That suggests to us that He can see into our hearts. He sees the purity of heart. He doesn't see perfection. He doesn't see sinlessness. But He knows who the pure in heart are. He knows those whose hearts are clean toward Him. Those who genuinely and sincerely trust in Jesus despite their sins, despite their struggles, despite their heartaches. He sees their hearts. God knows the heart, sees the heart, cherishes the pure in heart. And then the psalmist says, God is near. God is near. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 28, It is good for me to be near to God. Psalm 46, God is our... You could finish this verse, right? God is our refuge and strength a very present help trouble. God is near. And best of all, God is enough. God is enough. God is our Father. God is our friend. He is enough. Whatever you don't have in life, if you have God, you have enough. You have enough. That's what verses 25 
25 and 26 are about. Here is, here is the best friend of all. Here is the ultimate friend. Whom have I in heaven but you? Lord, when I think about heaven and all who are in heaven, Lord, there is just one that I really think about. It's you. I can't wait for heaven not to see my mom or dad primarily. I can't wait for heaven because I'm going to see you. I'm going to see your face. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's a rhetorical question. The answer he expects us to give is nobody. Nobody. And then he says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's saying, okay, I know. I spent the first half of this psalm complaining and whining and moaning over everything I don't have. I've been envying. But now that I've caught a glimpse of the ultimate friend, now that I've caught a glimpse of God in the sanctuary, I realize I've got everything I want. I don't need wealth. I don't need health. I don't need prosperity. I don't need cruise control life. I just need God. It's not a cliche. It's not a platitude. It's the heart and the soul of life. And you who have suffered the most in this room, I am guessing, know it the best and the deepest. You who have suffered the most have had those moments where God has revealed Himself to your soul and you've realized, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. You get to that point where you just realize that just to experience the presence and the nearness of God is better than life itself. And in verse 26, he writes, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. He's my portion. What does that mean? He is that amount that satisfies my soul. He, heart of my own heart. Heart of my own heart. He is he is my portion. I may be poor. I may be weak. I may be sick. I may be dying. But Lord, you are my portion. You satisfy my soul. Asaph had his envy cancer cured First, by being reminded that he had a better end. And then by being reminded that he had the ultimate friend. The all-satisfying God and Father of heaven and earth. And so, child of God, if, if I could do this, if I had the power to actually bring this to pass, oh, what joy. Be healed of your envy. Be cured of your envy. Let it go. Banish it from your heart. You say, how? Remember your end. He's going to take you to glory. And remember your friend. He is that one who alone satisfies, who holds your right hand, who is ever near to you and is your refuge and your strength. You don't have any other needs. 
That's the cure. That's the cure. It's interesting to me. I have to close. It's interesting to me. The hospital that David went to to get his cure. Did you notice it as we were reading? In Psalm 73 and verse 17, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Where was the the hospital? What was the hospital he went to to get his cure? The sanctuary of God, the house of God, where the people of God gathered. Can I suggest to you that when you are out there on your own, the disease of envy is going to get you. Come together as God's people. Become the house of God, the, not the building, the people, the sanctuary where God is. And you'll be reminded of things about God that will get you through, will cure your envy and all your other stuff. This is, this is why, if I can just make this application, this, this, this is why being a member of a church, a part of a church, committed to a church, is so very important. You need the sanctuary of God. You need the people of God. I don't know about you. I do know about you, but I'll just speak for myself. How many times I have come into the place where God's people are gathered with my heart in a bad place, and I have left with my heart in a good place. It is what happens in the sanctuary of God. It is what happens among the people of God. You need each other. We need each other or the world and its values and its envy and its grasping and its grabbing, that stuff is going to get to us. But it's when you go to the house of God, it's when you're among the people of God that you're reminded that you have a better end And you have the ultimate friend. And may it be then that as we gather here on Sundays, as we gather in our community groups, as we gather in our homes and around tables, that we will be those who remind each other of that better end and that ultimate friend so that the envy cancer can be cured and we can live contented, whole, complete, joy-filled, God is enough lives. Let's pray.